Amen. Thank you, Mr. Nix. Good morning, church. It is good to see you this morning. Um, you guys all survived the holidays, made back okay, um, and uh, it is, it's good. It feels good to see people we haven't seen in a while. I mean, we have people traveling all over the place, uh, going back east and, and whatnot, but uh, thank goodness for Sunday, bringing us all back together. Um, you know, after our fall series, we usually launch into a series in one of the Gospels for winter, spring, and between series. Uh, as we look forward to 2016, we've been having kind of a, a cluster of church, church life messages, and that's just what we do from time to time between, between series. And the underlying theme in this cluster of church life uh, messages has been an issue of, of unity. And uh, one of the reasons that we're addressing this is because uh, apparently God is doing a few things that, that make us believe there are a few changes in, in our future in 2016. And everybody says they like change until it happens. And uh, change sometimes has a way of um, wearing at, at unity. And what I've also discovered, and we also know that there's nothing that the evil one hates more than a united church advancing the kingdom of God in the city and uh, proclaiming the, the good news of who Jesus is and, and uh, what he has done and, and what he is doing. It's one of the reasons why the Apostle Paul tells us in Ephesians to stand against the schemes of the devil and that we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but spiritual forces of evil. The sin in our own hearts would be enough, but the evil one knows that there's sin in our hearts and is so good at manipulating us and causing disunity in the church. The passage that uh, Matt Nix read to us this morning, I think, is a really good case study, a great case study uh, when it comes to unity in God's community. Um, it's a case study of, of Paul defusing disharmony in the church, a disharmony that can blow the church apart. And Paul shows us how to make peace in relationships, but also how to maintain peace in relationships. See, I mean, you all know that most people have at least one strained relationship in their life. And a lot of times it's more than that. Strained relationships with friends and co-workers and spouses and parents and children and neighbors and whatever else. And specifically this morning, we're looking at relationships within the church. Our brothers and sisters in Christ. Now let me ask you, when you think about your strained relationships, are any of them with a brother or sister in Christ? Anybody in the church, anybody come to mind where it's not a relationship filled with love and grace and trust and being for that, that person? The truth is, disharmony absolutely blows apart the church. Disharmony is the church's suicide bomb. I mean, we destroy ourselves and others with disharmony. Disharmony is evidence of satanic manipulation. 
It is. Disharmony is evidence of satanic manipulation. Here, and here's the thing. When I find myself in disharmony with someone, it is so easy for me to view myself as the righteous one in the disagreement, and by implication, the other person is not. In fact, I may view it as a righteous thing for me to break off fellowship with someone. It's satanic manipulation. So we need to know how to defuse disharmony if we're going to see real unity in the church. Now, what's important for us is to look at the big picture. What does God want for us to be as a church? Well, the the church is kind of like a, a movie preview, okay? He wants us to live in such a way that it's a a preview of what a a fully established kingdom of God looks like. That's something that we're always growing in, right? But he calls the church to live in such a way that it's a preview of what the kingdom of God looks like. And central to that is how we relate to each other. So... I want you to think of somebody, a, a Christian brother or sister, maybe somebody even within this church, somebody that, that you butt heads with, or, or it's just, I don't know, it's, it's just not smooth sailing in that, that relationship, or somebody with whom you, you strongly disagree. My question for you, as you think of that person, and as you think of how you relate to that person, how do you handle that? How do you handle that interaction? Is it just always kind of aggressive or maybe it's passive aggressive? I mean, what kind of preview of the kingdom of God are you showing as you interact with that person that that you disagree with or you have conflict with? I have another question for you. How important do you think it is to God? I mean, on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he prayed for his church. And specifically, you know what he prayed for? He prayed for unity. That we would experience the kind of love that that Christ and his father experienced. Why? Well, he tells us. We read it in his prayer. He says, so that the world may know that the gospel message is true. That's what Jesus was praying for as he faced crucifixion, as he faced the cross, as he faced the torment of of taking the sin of the world upon himself and a, a break in his relationship with God. It was unity, harmony, and loving relationships. And that kind of gives us an idea of how important this is to Jesus. And so much of the time, We fail so miserably in this, don't we? I mean, if we're honest. Now, whether it's fair or unfair, I mean, (laughs) a lot of times it is fair. You've heard it thrown around here and there that one of the strongest arguments against Christianity is Christians. Often it's unfair. But often it's right on how we treat each other. And when people see uh, on the outside looking in at at the church, it's supposed to be a preview of the kingdom of God, but they see the church splits, and they see the fighting, and they see the arguing, they see people getting offended, and they see the discontent, and they look at it, and they say, you know what, where's the unity? Where's this love and peace and forgiveness that they're always talking about? 
disharmony and bitterness and grudges and being offended and gossip and lack of loyalty destroy the message of the gospel. Non-Christians look at, at the church's preview of coming attractions and said, yeah, you know what, I don't think I want to see that one. When I, when I see a movie preview with Sylvester Stallone wearing a beret and black motorcycle gloves, I don't have to wonder, do I want to go see that? I already know. I don't. Right? I'll just wait till it comes out on Netflix, and then I'll watch it. And then I'll hate myself for wasting two hours. Now, we can't go back and fix church history. But we can and we must cultivate healthy relationships within our church. And how do we do that? Well, that's what we're going to be talking about. If you're taking notes with inserts in your bulletin, the first is this. We'll start with what is involved in diffusing disharmony, this bomb that just blows apart the church and, and, and just ruins our gospel testimony. Well, Paul shows us three things in this case study here that we see in these verses. First of all, it involves loving one another. Now, I know, that sounds like a no-brainer. We throw around loving each other like it's like, like, like nothing, right? And we never really stop to, to think it, about it or, or see that with with fresh eyes or hear about it with, with new, new ears, but it's critical. Listen to verse 1. He says, Therefore, my brothers whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. Now, this verse right here starts with the word therefore, and that means that it is a transitional verse. It is a bridge between what he has said before this and it connects it to what he is about to say. Now, he just finished talking about how awesome God's grace is and how awesome Christ is. And, and now he's shifting gears and he says, therefore, here's the application. Therefore, in light of God's awesome grace and sacrifice for you, here is how you respond and how you live. Here is the holy life. That you live in response to that. Stand firm in the Lord. And he piles, uh, he piles up six terms of affection. Did you notice that? My brother, whom I love and long for. My joy, my crown, my beloved. Why does Paul do that? Well, because now he's about to correct them. Unity does not mean just sweeping stuff under the rug. It, it, it's, it's also not achieved by, by, you know, doing some kind of emotional, relational, intellectual judo on the person so they agree with you. Paul addresses it lovingly. And he piles these terms of affection on top of each other because he wants to make sure that his motives and attitudes aren't misunderstood. It's not about him. He has just an incredible amount of love for the people that he's about to correct. And so he reminds them of his love for them so that they can, so they can receive what he's about to say. Do you think that this just might help us in our conflicts? Just a little bit? Here's the thing. Conflict resolution is, is not so much about technique as it is about a profound love for each other. As a church, we got to get this. 
If we are going to be a missionary church, if we are going to be a preview of the kingdom of God, the way we, we, that we relate to each other needs to be different and stand out in stark contrast to the way the world relates to each other. Community does not mean that our loyalty to each other won't be tested. Let me tell you something. Loyalty, loyalty to each other will be tested. You know this is true, right? We see it all the time. Loyalty to each other will be tested. It's part of life. Community means that we survive those tests together. Through all of the tough stuff. From being slighted, from being offended, from just, just blatant sin against each other. This is the kind of love that the Apostle Paul is talking about. It stands in stark contrast against the way the world relates to each other. That's the first thing involved in diffusing disharmony, is, is loving one another. Second, it's agreeing with one another. If you look at verse 2, it says this. I entreat Euodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Now, first question is this. What in the world does entreat mean? Entreat means plead. It means beg. I'm going to talk more about that in a second. But first, who in the world are Euodia and Syntyche? Not the most popular names in the baby name books, are they? I don't even think they're in there. And there may be a couple reasons for that, but one is because we really don't know much about them. Some Bible scholars and commentators have pieced a few things together, and they, they suggest that they're probably mature because it's unusual uh, for Paul and his letters to, to churches to publicly call people out. It would, it would be like me saying in, in a sermon, now, this next point is specifically for Johnny Upson and Andy. All right, <laughs> you're ready. And Shem. <laughs> the fact that Paul does this shows the, the, the seriousness of the problem, but also that he must consider these women mature enough to be able to handle this, this public correction. And so these scholars suggest that they're probably mature. They also suggest that they're leaders. The conflict is probably not just some a conflict or some bickering between a couple of crabby people. Apparently, there's a, a major division uh, within the church leadership. Maybe there are deaconesses. We're not sure, but, but we cannot minimize Paul's description of the two women as fellow workers who shared in the apostolic struggle. They're mature. They're leaders, the scholars suggest. And what is obvious is that they are at odds. We don't exactly know what they're arguing about, but that's not the point, is it? Their preview was ruining coming attraction. Paul says, I plead with you. I beg, I beg you. I entreat you that each of you agree with each other. Now, how in the world do you agree with someone with whom you disagree? Do you just agree to disagree? Is that it? Apparently, that won't cut it this time. 
And Paul doesn't give them a a step-by-step process here, but he does give them a starting point. He says, agree with each other in the Lord. He's reminding them of how much they do have in common and that it's so much more significant than any other disagreements they may have. They have the same Lord. They agree on the central truth of the message of Jesus Christ, the gospel. Beyond that, all of the other disagreements they, they might have are minor and can be worked out if you agree in the Lord. He says, focus on your unity in Christ. That's it. If you skip over that, there's no hope. <laughs> Listen, you know what? We are committed to being a church that focuses on, on gospel unity. Okay? It doesn't mean we agree on everything, but we agree on the truth of the gospel. And we're, we're not defined by our pet theologies or, or um, what we're against or what we don't like. We really do want to, to focus on issues that really count, like who is Jesus, what he's done, and what he's doing. If we start there, then we can discuss the areas that, that we disagree um, on, and, and, and we should. I think that's a, a healthy thing. But it's with obvious love for each other that's rooted in agreement on who Jesus is, what he's done, and, and what he's doing. That is what shapes us into a church that's determined to remain united as, as we work together and as we, you know, inadvertently or even purposely step on each other's toes from time to time. And as we take the gospel and the love of Christ into our neighborhoods and beyond, we can agree in the Lord. That's key. That's critical. Third, diffusing disharmony involves helping one another. In, in verse 3, Paul says this, Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Now, when he says true companion, who is he talking about? Well, there's a lot of speculation as far as that goes, but a reasonable interpretation is that it's Paul's way of inviting various members of the church to prove themselves as loyal partners in the work of the gospel by helping these women reconcile. See, disagreement between two Christians, it's not just a personal issue. It does not just affect them. It affects the church. It affects the testimony of the gospel. And we have a responsibility collectively as a community of grace to help each other preserve and promote gospel unity. Again, no steps here, but part of being called into community together is to get involved in the redemptive process. We have been given the ministry of reconciliation. We are agents of reconciliation. Otherwise, you know what? It's just way too easy if nobody gets involved, if nobody graciously intervenes for people when they have a falling out or when they're, they're offended or when they disagree or, or when they have different perspectives on, on what we should and shouldn't do. I mean, it, when, when there's that conflict, it's all too easy 
for people when they don't like something or when they experience tension to say, you know what, I think God is calling me to break fellowship. It happens all the time. It's so amazing how easily we just justify. And who's going to argue with God calling me? None of this stuff is easy, is it? It's easier just talking about people who are in a strained relationship and shaking your head rather than actually, you know, helping them. It is our responsibility to make sure people don't bail on their church family. Now, we got to go a little bit deeper with the tough question. That Obviously, there's a built-in assumption here, and the, the question is this. Why don't we diffuse disharmony? Why don't we? Well, first of all, if we're going to diffuse disharmony that, that blows apart the church and ruins the gospel testimony and preview of the kingdom of God, if we're going to diffuse disharmony, we got to get to the fuse. Right? So what causes disharmony? Why is it so difficult? Well, here's the short answer, and then I'll explain it. It's, it's because our over-desires battle within us. Look with me, uh, at, well, I'll just read it, and I'll have it up on the screen, James 4. Listen to what James says. He says, what causes file, uh, fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that, that battle within you? You want something, but you don't get it. You kill and covet, but you cannot have what you want. You quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. And when you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong Motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. Now, when James writes in verse 2, you want something, he uses a word which means over-desire. James is saying that at the root of our disunity, at the root of our bitterness, at the root of holding a grudge, at the root of our anger, the root of our criticism, at the, at the root of our defensiveness, at the root of our envy, at the root of our biting words, at the root of our backstabbing and gossip, at the root of neglect of peacemaking is our over-desires. And so what are our over-desires? You know what they are? You know what our over-desires are? They are usually good things that we want in a bad way. Okay? They are usually good things that we want in a bad way. And since they are good things, that's why we justify ourselves so often and never make any progress on reconciliation. They are good things that we have to have uh, if we are going to be happy. We cannot be happy or okay with, without it. Uh, we might have the desire for respect. We might have the desire of, of approval of people. We might have uh, the desire to, to know that we're making a difference in the world. Or we might have a, a desire that, that people uh, agree with us and see things our way. All of those things are good, right? Right? It's not wrong to necessarily to desire those things. The problem is when they become an over-desire. 
when we, when we have an over-desire, they, they are good things that we want in a bad way. When they become, these good things become, our desire for them becomes so intensified to the point that we say, I have to have this in order for me to be okay. Or you need to give me this in order for me to be okay, in order for me to be satisfied, in order for me to, to feel secure. James is saying that is what lights the fuse of disharmony that just blows apart the church. So, how can we identify our over-desires, especially if they're good things? Because a lot of times we just can't see them because they're good. All right. In the first service, I asked, how many people saw the Harry Potter movies? And one person raised their hand. <laughs> it was Josh Cass. <laughs> right? <laughs> Anyone else here see the Harry Potter movies? All right, a few, a few, just a few more of you. I remember watching the movie with my kids, and there's a part when Harry Potter finds the mirror of Erised. Right? You remember that? And what's kind of interesting is that the word erised is desire spelled backwards. And whoever looks into the mirror of erised sees their deepest, most desperate desire, their over-desire. It could even be something good like family. Can I just tell you that it's incredibly popular to break off fellowship with the church in the name of family. That they hang that on their family and use the family as the reason, their good reason for breaking off fellowship as if that were good for their family. It happens all the time. So how can we identify our over-desires? What we do is we look in the mirror of Erised, and we have one. And you know what our mirror is? It is bitterness. It is, it is sinful anger. It is frustration. When, when those things stir up in our hearts, the, the frustration, which is code for impatience most of the time, which is opposite of the fruit of the Spirit, when, when that gets stirred up in, in our hearts, normally it just stops right there and we look to someone else to fix it. As opposed to, hey, this is supposed to be a mirror that forces us to look at ourselves. Whenever we feel frustration, whenever we feel bitterness, stop pointing at everybody else and, and saying, oh, look, you know, it's the church's problem or it's his problem or her problem or, or whatever. Look at your own hearts. Because... God, I think, uses those things as, 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 as mirrors to reveal our over-desires. And they may even be good things. So, maybe we have an over-desire for respect. Or maybe we have an over-desire for approval. Or we have an over-desire for appreciation. Or over-desire for somebody to see something our way and agree with us. And what happens is we get bitter if we think that they just are being dismissive or when they slight us 
Or maybe we have an over-desire for, for well-behaved kids and, and we overreact in sinful anger when they misbehave. Or, or if we have an over-desire for comfort, we get frustrated when someone just messes that up and then we justify it because they're good things. There's nothing wrong with this. But it's an over-desire. So, this morning... What is your over-desire? I mean, use this time right here, right now. Think, maybe you don't know where to start. Think about someone who's frustrating you right now. Think about uh, something you don't like in the church. Think about, I don't, I don't know, a spouse, a child, a parent, or whatever. Anything that's causing a frustration or bitterness. Remember, it's a mirror of said that Eris said that's supposed to cause you, help you to look at your own heart. Start there. And, and let me tell you three destructive things about our over-desires. And I think are important to see because otherwise we cherish our over-desires and we protect them, right? First of all, they're weak. I don't care how good they are. If it's an over-desire... I'm telling you, they are weak. When we succeed in, in something, anything, our over-desires raise the bar. And then when we fail, they leave us with guilt and shame. If we have an over-desire for success in ministry or success in school or success in work or success in a, in a relationship with a special someone or whatever it is, and if it's an over-desire, what happens when we reach our goal? We're happy for two and a half minutes, and then we set another goal, right? They can't satisfy. As good as they may be, they cannot ultimately satisfy. And what happens if we fail to reach that goal? They can only condemn, which sometimes causes us to strive harder for, to acquire what it is that we think we need, and we destroy ourselves and anybody else around us. They're weak. Secondly, our over-desires are harmful. They don't only harm us spiritually and harm us emotionally and even harm us physically. They hurt others by undermining our ability to love them unconditionally. So feeling that sense of security is great, isn't it? It's good. We often have an over-desire for security. And I'm telling you, it can hurt us. For example, when our rent goes up, our joy goes down. When our income decreases, our anxiety increases. Then we can't sleep at night, and we don't want to be awake during the day. And it hurts others. Because it keeps us from being generous. Or we'll envy those who seem to be secure. I mean, this one sneaks up on us, right? Third, our over-desires are grievous. When we make any good thing the thing that we have to have in order to be happy, we are saying to God, you know what? Jesus just simply is not enough. Our over-desires 
battle within us and they tear us apart. They tear our relationships apart. They tear the church apart. They tear apart our gospel testimony. All right. How many here have seen Lord of the Rings? All right, I read the book. All right, cool. And what did Gollum call the ring? <laughs> yeah, I even said it like him. That's great. My precious. Right? <laughs> and we watched him go nuts fighting his over-desire. Now, we see that in other people so easily, don't we? It's so difficult to see in ourselves. That's why when that little Frodo dude had the ring, he needed his friend Samwise, what's his face? Yes, him. Because because Frodo couldn't see what was happening to him. That's why we need the community, and we need to be open to letting other people speak into our lives. And we need to be willing to lovingly and sacrificially and in a way that reassures them of your love and relationship for them in a gentleness and respect to speak into somebody else's life. This is what happens to us. We get torn apart. We go crazy fighting over desires. And it sometimes just seems hopeless and it leads to disharmony. So the question is how? How can we defuse disharmony? Okay. If you leave here thinking that all you got to do is just try harder, I'm not saying it won't involve effort or trying, or, but if you leave here just thinking that all you got to do is try harder, I'm telling you it's not going to work. we got to defuse our over-desires. And how do we do that? Here's the short answer that might not make sense at first. Only by the expulsive power of a greater desire. Okay, question. What does expulsive mean? Expulsive means ejecting, or better yet, bumping out. Okay? I want to read a quote that helped me understand uh, the way we change and grow as, as Christians. It's It's from an essay by a guy named Thomas Chalmers, and it was written in the early 1800s, and and it's titled, The Expulsive Power of a New uh, Affection. And he says this, It is seldom that any of our bad habits or flaws or sin disappear by a mere process of natural extinction or reasoning or by the force of mental determination. But... What cannot be destroyed may be dispossessed, and one desire may be made to give way to another. So we can't necessarily destroy an over-desire, but we can replace it. And he gives some examples. He says, it is thus that the youth ceases to idolize sensual pleasure, but it is because the idol or over-desire of wealth has taken over. And even the love of money can cease to have mastery over the heart because it is drawn into the world of ideology and politics. And he is now lorded over by a love of power and moral superiority. 
but there is not one of these transformations in which the heart is left without an object it desires. Its desire for one particular object is conquered, but its desire to have some object is unconquerable. See, our hearts will always have an object of desire, but the question is, is it worthy of my life? Is it worthy of my soul? Thomas Chalmers goes on to say, and I'll put this up on on the screen, he says, the only way to dispossess the heart of an old desire is by the expulsive power of a new one. It is only when admitted into the number of God's children through faith in Jesus Christ that the spirit of adoption is poured out on us. It is then that the heart brought under the mastery of one great and predominant affection or desire is delivered from the tyranny of its former desires and the only way that deliverance is possible. So what is the one great desire that can expel all other over-desires. Chalmers says it is a grateful love for Jesus. When we see Jesus, when we see his love, when we trust him, our hearts are filled with affection that drives out the over-desires. And we look into the mirror of Erised and we see Jesus and we say, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. And so how do we get that desire? Paul points us to the answer. He says, Euodia and Syntyche have contended at my side in the cause of the gospel. Paul gives them perspective by deliberately reminding them of the gospel. And it is the gospel that stirs up that desire. It is the great story of King Jesus, the great story that all other great stories point to. Why is there disharmony in the world? Why does a couple massacre people at a Christmas party? Why are men and women and kids living on the streets eating out of dumpsters? Why do we look down on people? Why do we turn our backs on each other and bail when things get difficult? Why do over-desires battle within us? It's because the wrong king is on the throne of people's hearts. And when the wrong king is on the throne, all hell breaks loose. But the the gospel story is this. Our king has, has come to us. And he did battle with darkness. And he healed the sick and he casts out demons and he claims, he calms the stormy sea and raises the dead. He is diffusing disharmony in the world and advancing his kingdom. But then we we watch the story play out, and what do we see? They arrest our king. They beat him, and they spit on him. I mean, what in the world's going on? I mean, do something already. But he's weak, and our king dies. I mean, we thought, we hoped that he was the one, but he's crucified, and he dies, and and he's buried. But three days later, his body is gone, and Mary asks, where did you put my Lord? And then she hears his voice, it's me. (laughs) He's alive. She says, my Lord and my God. 
it was through defeat that he triumphs. It was through death that he defeats death. And he says to us, I want you to tell the world that I am alive, he says, that the king rules with all authority on, on heaven and on, on earth, and I will be with you always, even until the end. And then he ascends to his rightful throne and majesty. And then he takes a bride. And who is his bride? It's the church. Collectively, those who've trusted in him. I mean, he brought unfaithful people like us into this great story to be with him. And now our names are written in the book of life. Listen, I know everybody to some degree or another, we, we worry about missing out. We miss out on what's best. We have an idea, and probably, it's a, probably a good ideal, and then we worry about missing out on that ideal. And you know what? Let me tell you something. We are missing out, and you have no idea how much we are missing out of in this life. But we know that, in, that we know Jesus ultimately, because of him, we're not, we're not going to miss out on, on, on anything. I mean, there's going to become a day where we're going to look back and say, what was I worried about? One day, he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. One day, we will be like him. This is the promise that he fulfills for his people. We will enter his presence. And you know what? We won't need anything else. All of life's heartaches and all of life's broken dreams will just absolutely vanish. The question is, do you believe that? I mean, if you don't believe that, you're, gonna, you're just going to waste away your life and all of your energy and break up relationships by just grasping after everything. One day, our greatest desires will be fulfilled in Christ for all eternity. And we will enter into, for all eternity, the joy of being with King Jesus, the King of kings and the Lord of lords forever. See, this is the gospel. There is a king who will make everything that is wrong right, who conquers sin, death, and destruction, who loves us enough to live and die for us. His name is Jesus Christ, and he makes living Happily ever after, our reality. This is the expulsive power of a new affection. And we respond by loving one another through thick and thin. That is a holiness issue. Not loving one another through thick and thin is unholy. It is holy to love one another through thick and thin. It is holy to agree with one, or one another in the Lord in spite of our differences. It is holy to help each other diffuse disharmony. This is the power of the gospel. Amen? Would you bow your heads with me?
Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you that, that um, we're not stuck with the status quo of the world, with unfulfilled longings of the heart, that you have given us yourself, and that you ultimately fulfill our greatest longings. We know that there are things in this world that just cannot satisfy our hearts, and so it leads us to believe that we are created for another world. We are created for your perfect kingdom with you ruling and reigning and with everything that's wrong in the world made right. God, so often we just lose sight of that. We become cynical and skeptical, and that leads us to start grasping for everything, even good things. We just don't simply believe that the gospel is true, that we are secure in you, that we are satisfied ultimately in, in you. God, I, I, I pray that you would liberate us from this fear that we just live with day in and day out, this fear of worrying that we're going to miss out on something and so we just demand it from other people and they can never deliver what can only come from you. Heavenly Father, I pray um, that we would understand that when we feel bitterness or when we feel frustration or when we feel contempt or when we feel uh, offended, that we should use that as an opportunity to look in the mirror at our own hearts, to see what it, our over-desires and that we would confess our idolatry and may that lead us, uh, not just leave us there condemned, but lead us to the cross, knowing that, that you died for that. And you conquered sin and death and eternal judgment through the, the cross and rose again from the grave to give us new life that can only be found in you, the best life that can only be found in you. A life that is lived with a heart full of gratitude that enables us to live with humility, to not be so demanding, to live generous lives and to be gracious, to be forgiving, to give people the benefit of the doubt, to build people up, to lovingly and, and, and graciously and gently and respectfully uh, challenge people in their over-desires, but also putting us in a position of humility to be open to other people challenging us. God, we thank you that your love covers a multitude of sin. Thank you that you did not wait for us to change before you loved us. And God, I pray, Lord, that we'd have the same attitude towards others because of that, that we don't wait for other people to change for us to love them. This truly is um, 
this truly does stand in stark contrast to the way the world lives. God, may we be faithful representatives of your kingdom, agents of reconciliation. And may, us, may we be patient the way that you are patient with us. God, I pray if there's anybody here that has never put their faith and trust in you, um, that this morning you would draw them to yourself, that, that uh, you would give them the, the courage, that you'd give them the ability to follow you, to trust you as their king, as their deliverer, to, to without any inhibitions, freely confess uh, their sin the way that we all must confess our sin to have a deep appreciation for your grace to stir up a greater affection for you than for anything else. We pray this in your name.